welcome back to Vegetarian Zen, a peaceful place for vegetarians, vegans, and the veg curious to share tips for living a more compassionate plant-based lifestyle. I'm one of your hosts, Vicki. And this is Larissa. In this episode of the Vegetarian Zen podcast, we are pleased and very honored to welcome Marion Nessel. Marion is a Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University. In our conversation with Marion, we talked to her about her latest book, Let's Ask Marion, which takes a conversational Q&A format with questions posed by environmentalist and food writer, Carrie Truman. But before that, let's hear from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Golden Apple Roundtable. Who are the members of the Golden Apple Roundtable? These are the folks that help ensure that the lights stay on at Vegetarian Zen by providing us with monetary support via Patreon.com. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for artists and creators to get support from their fans, followers, and community members. Many people don't realize that there are costs involved in putting together a podcast, but we do incur costs for media hosting, website hosting, equipment, etc., Any monetary support that we receive through Patreon goes directly back into the cost of producing the show and keeping it going free to our listeners. If you're interested in supporting us on a monthly basis, please head out to patreon.com forward slash vegetarian zen and there you will see a video of Larissa and me. And in that video, we discuss the mission of Vegetarian Zen. On the right-hand side of the page, you're going to see some various support levels, anywhere from a dollar a month to $50 a month. And you can also customize your uh, level of giving, by the way. Those are just some suggestions. Certain levels will qualify you for some Vegetarian Zen swag, such as a car magnet, recyclable grocery bags, stickers, or a t-shirt. Even a dollar a month can go a long way to help keep the podcast going. So thank you to our current, our past, and our future Golden Apple Roundtable members. Thank you. If you're not interested in contributing on a monthly basis, we also have a one-time button located on our website that says Bias a Juice. If you go to vegetarianzen.com forward slash support, you will see that at the bottom of the page. And you can provide us with a one-time monetary contribution to help support the show. Okay, and we do have two new Golden Apple Roundtable members. Cue the fanfare. All right, and we have, uh, as you said, two new members. One, the first member is my awesome grad school buddy, Dee, Dee Luis, and she uh, has recently become a Golden Apple Roundtable member. Thank you so much. And the second is Rochelle. 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 Thank you so much, guys. We really appreciate it. Uh, If you are interested, like we said, you can head out to vegetarianzen.com forward slash support. All right. Are we ready to get into our interview? Let's do this. This is exciting. Very exciting. All right. So Marion Nessel is, as you mentioned, a Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University. Her passionate and clarifying insights into food politics challenge people to consider their own role in the global food chain and to strive for a healthier, more sustainable, more equitable future. Today, we're talking to Marion about her latest book, Let's Ask Marion. All right. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Marion. Oh, I'm really glad to be here. 
<laughs> We're really excited to talk to you about your book. And I had mentioned to you just a bit ago that I don't, there's only been a handful of books that I've actually finished in one day. And yours is on that list now because I just love your new book, Let's Ask Marion. So we definitely want to talk about that. Uh, but before we do, can you let folks know a little bit about yourself and about the work you do? Sure. Um, I'm a professor emerita at New York University. I'm officially the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at NYU, uh, now retired. This is what retirement looks like. Um, <laughs> and I write books about food politics. Um, my first book about food politics was called Food Politics. It came out in 2002, and there have been 10 more since, with Let's Ask Marion being the most recent. So, okay, so this is really a fun story in itself. How did this book come to be? So I was reading a little bit about that, but it's interesting how this kind of even happened. Well, the, uh, the answer to it has to do with the reading in one day part. Um, I published several books with University of California Press, and an editor there several years ago said, your books are so long. They're 500 pages. They're 600 pages. They've got thousands of references. What we'd really like is a short summary of everything you've said. And I thought, they have to be out of their minds. Um, I mean, this is just crazy. There were, you know, I had 10 books and uh, thousands of pages and thousands of references. And I couldn't imagine how I could possibly do it. And it didn't sound like fun. But they kept asking. And, you know, part of the problem was I find short essays very hard to write. Um, I like documenting what I'm talking about, and that takes time and space and references. And so I resisted for a long time. And then one day I had this really bright idea. I remembered that about 10 years ago, a friend of mine, Carrie Truman, um, was writing a blog called Eating Liberally. And every now and then she would throw me a question. And her questions were really mini essays. They were based on something that she'd read or something that had come up. And she would write me, oh, I don't know, 150 or 200 word questions that um, were really fun and got me thinking. And for some reason or other, they were just really hard to respond. They're really easy to respond to. I could just kind of whip them off. Um, and she would post uh, her question and my answer on her blog under the title, Let's Ask Marion. So in a sense, the title is hers. So when all this pushing was going on to do something that I thought would be impossible, I remembered Carrie and asked her if she'd be willing to work with me on this. And she said, yes. And we were off and running. So she's my co-author on this book. Well, and you know, I, I think that's exactly what uh, makes the book so readable is the the kind of the Q&A format uh, and the fact that the questions are so they're, they're questions that that I have and that that I know Vicky has and that so many other people have already and I think that just having them in that easily digestible you know um, I have this question too and oh my gosh here's the answer I think that's just it makes it a, the perfect format Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that because, you know, her questions are a couple hundred words and mine are 800 or 1,000 words. I mean, these are very short by my standards. They're very short. Um, and there are 18 of them and an introduction and conclusion. And 
I don't know. We had fun doing it. You know, Marion, one of the things that, you know, we've been podcasting since 2013 and uh, we became, that's the same year we became vegetarian and we have really looked into a lot of the um, politics behind food and it's incredible to me and, and this book and your work in general does such a great job of helping us understand how this idea that food is political. And I know this is, you've written a lot of books on this. So to ask you if you can just like succinctly just kind of say how that is. If somebody says, if somebody's just starting to get this, how, how do you, how would you describe food as being political? Well, for one thing, there's a lot of money in it. Everybody in the world eats and everybody in the world buys food. And that means we're talking here about serious big business. Um, but I think the easiest way, I mean, coronavirus has made it really easy to talk about these issues because all I have to do is say, look at what's happening in meatpacking plants. And everybody gets the politics right away. Um, meatpacking workers were work under terrible conditions. They're very crowded. It's dangerous work. They're on top of each other. And they probably don't have much in the way of sick leave or health care. Um, they were getting sick. The plants needed to close. Public health authorities wanted the plants to close. And the president of the United States invoked the Defense Production Act to force them to keep working so that the supply of protein in the United States diet uh, would not decline. Now, if you are vegetarians, you will find that as, as hilariously funny as I did, because it's as if vegetables don't have protein or as if beans and grains aren't major sources of protein in American and everybody else's diets. That's politics. The Defense Production Act, you can't get any more political than that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, so over the years, and you've been, you've been writing about this for a very long time, uh, even in the time that we've been kind of paying attention or as the kids say, woke <laughs> about this kind of stuff, uh, you know, we've seen, I think one of the things is social media tends to really, and in the, in the access we have to information these days is is much more, uh, there's a lot more of, a, of it for those of us who are paying attention. Would, have you seen that too? Have you seen a oh, lot more people yeah. paying attention? Well, more people paying attention and everybody's an expert. Oh, that's true. That's very true. <laughs> you got a lot of lawyers and uh, constitutional lawyers and uh, nutritionists out there in social media land for sure. Yeah, I know. I think there is much more interest in it now because it's more accessible and because it's everybody eats. Everybody has a personal interest in food. Uh, it's something you put in your body. Nothing could be more intimate. Um, you know, it's in it's interior. It's part of you. You are what you eat. It's your culture. It's your identity. Uh, I mean, food is really important. And the uh, I think the pandemic has pointed out a lot of the ways in which food is important. And that's it's been really gratifying to see people get that so quickly. Yeah, to your point about people being experts or thinking they're experts, how I, I think one of the challenges these days is really trying to make sense of the ever-changing health advice that's out there. In other words, something is healthy today and then tomorrow it's bad, like wine and coffee, which are two of my favorite things. <laughs> uh, those are great examples. How does someone just, you know, everyday person try to make sense of that? Well, I think there are two parts to that question. One is I don't think that advice changes. 
I mean, I have a different view of this. I look at dietary advice from the 1950s when chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, and so forth, just were, be, were the rates were beginning to rise very quickly. Um, advice then is looks exactly like advice now. Um, and it's, uh, I think dietary advice is so simple. I'm fond of quoting the journalist Michael Pollan, who says dietary advice boils down to eat food, not too much, mostly plants. He can do it in seven words. And he's got it. I mean, that really is all there is to it with some ex explanation of what those things mean. But the if it seems to be changing all the time, it's because there the food industry is very competitive. We have roughly twice the amount of food that we need in this country. Um, and that makes the food industry extraordinarily competitive. Every food company is competing with every other food company for the share of, a, of the consumer's dollar. And that also distorts the way people think about it. So everybody tends to focus on one food rather than on the diet as a whole. Uh, when in fact, it's it's really hard for me to imagine how one food would make any difference. So for interpreting all the studies that come out and the hype that comes out, uh, my first advice is to use common sense. I mean, does it make sense? Really? If you eat blueberries, you're going to live forever? If you, <laughs> if you eat pomegranates, you're going to be smarter? I mean, think about it for a minute. And, you know, if you do think about it for a minute, which, of course, you're not supposed to, um, you know immediately that it can't possibly be that important, that it might make a tiny little difference, but that everything you eat matters. And it's the totality of it that really matters. But that's kind of hard to think about. You have to think about too many things at once. And most people uh, would rather focus on one food because, for one thing, it's a lot more fun. Right, uh, that, exactly. And you know, what you said, getting back to the food industry, uh, really kind of makes me, uh, well, it steams me a little bit. But, uh, it, you know, the way that the food industry and, and big companies influence what we eat and, you know, by by pushing, like you said, by pushing uh, blueberry, even, even if it's something that's, that's, healthy like like fruits or vegetables you know it, by pushing that because it's something that they can make money on i think that uh is, is something that it makes it easy for us but it's not necessarily always in our best interest no i mean in the healthy diets contain a variety of large a healthy diet is largely plant-based not necessarily exclusively but certainly largely plant-based and that means fruits, vegetables, grains, beans, nuts. Um, and there's so much evidence that shows that people whose diet is based largely on those kinds of foods are healthier than people who are eating a lot of meat, uh, particularly. And the, um, but to single out one nut, uh, walnuts, as opposed to peanuts or uh, cashews or pecans or m macadamia nuts or any other kind, just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, the key to really good nutrition is to eat a very wide variety of foods, but never in large amounts and never heavily processed. Mm-hmm. 
or not usually highly processed. Never, I don't like to use never, um, but not highly processed. And the uh, and those principles are very simple. They allow for an enormous variety of diets. There's no such thing as a single healthy diet. There, are, you can put healthy diets together in thousands and thousands of ways. Mm-hmm. And throughout human history, that's exactly what people have done. And one of the places that I think you see a lot of processed foods is unfortunately in schools. So can we talk a little bit maybe about kids and how we give kids access to healthy food? I think especially right now with everything going on, that can even be more of a challenge. So I know you do address a little bit about that in your book. Uh, Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Oh, I'd be delighted because I think it's an enormously important issue. Kids are the future of our society, of every society, and they need to eat well in order to grow and prosper and develop their brains and do all those things that kids need to do. And I've been amazed to see what's been going on during the pandemic where everybody suddenly woke up to the idea that kids who are in school are not just going there to learn. They also are fed in school. And if they're not going to school, they're not being fed. And so schools started producing foods and, and, and essentially creating universal school meals for all kids, school kids, which is something that advocates have been pushing for for years and years and years. The current school lunch system is needs-based, and that means that families have to fill out an enormous amount of paperwork to demonstrate that they're poor enough to qualify for free meals or reduced price meals, and that also means that the schools have an enormous amount of administrative work to do in order to make sure that undeserving people don't get fed. And undeserving families include uh, immigrant families who are terrified to sign up for a government program because they're afraid they might be deported. Um, It includes people who don't speak English. It includes all kinds of people who really, whose kids need to be fed just like everybody else's. And during the pandemic, schools did universal school meals. The world has not come to an end. It's working. And the president has extended uh, universal school meals until December 31st. I hope it continues after that. Right. Well, you know, hopefully there'll be a, a uh, different person to extend that. <laughs> um, but that's a whole different, that's a whole different kind of that's politics. A whole different, uh, that's a whole different discussion. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, you know, when you talk about universal school lunches, I think that kind of uh, leads into something else that you talk a lot about, and that's national food, po- having a national food policy. And I, I think, you know, that and I think that I'll, most people would agree with with us is that that is something that is absolutely essential, um, you know, and I think that above uh, right along with with having a, a vaccine for the coronavirus and and, you know, having a, a, a national mask policy in place and things like that, a national food policy, I think, is something that is just absolutely essential and could help to to do several things. I mean, get people fed, of course, um, but also bring this country back together. Um, can you talk a little bit about what a national food policy uh, would look like? 
No, absolutely. Um, I, you know, the current situation is when I was writing the book, I thought, oh, I've got to just do the work and list all of the different food policies that we have in this country. And I can't remember how many there were. I think there were 12 or 13 different major policies, policies that governed agriculture, policies that governed consumption, policies that covered things like food labeling and advertising, labor policies, um, just all of these things. And they're all done by different agencies. Uh, The agencies don't talk to each other very much. The rules are obscure, complicated, in tiny print in the Federal Register, and one part of the system doesn't know what the other part is doing in a situation in which what we really need, if you were going to be rational about this, is we really need a food system in which food production and consumption are firmly linked so that we produce food that is going to promote health and the health of humans, and also produce food in ways that are going to protect the climate and protect the environment. Um, And so we have this collection of rules that don't do that now. We have a food system that does not promote health and that does not protect the environment. And that's that's what we need to do. And if we could bring all those policies together in one place and have some kind of rational discussion about what a reasonable uh, national food policy would look like, I think it would be very different than what we have now. Um, And I think the uh, uh, rational food policy, first of all, would reward food producers so that they could make a living, would pay everybody involved in the food system decently, and that includes farm workers and meatpacking workers and everybody else who's picking the food or serving the food, restaurant workers. Um, And then a, a policy should promote health. It should Promote, promote production and consumption of fruits and vegetables, currently considered specialty crops by the Department of Agriculture. Um, it should protect the climate. It should avoid polluting uh, the, the way that our production agriculture system does. It pollutes uh, soil, air, and water. Um, I mean, these kinds of should protect natural resources. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. And we know how to do all those things. It's not as if we don't know how to do all those things. Right, it's just right. the money and the money in production agriculture goes for corn and soybeans, which are grown to feed animals and produce ethanol for cars. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. We should be producing food for people. Right, absolutely. And, you know, right along with that, and I think that if we had a policy like you just described, where everything fits together and everybody works together, I think that that would go a long way toward addressing another issue that uh, we have a huge issue, which you also discuss, which is uh, food waste. And, you know, to me, it's absolutely ridiculous that so much food is wasted um, when there are people who need it. And I think that having that pol- a policy like you just discussed, ag- again, would really go a long way toward addressing that and solving that issue as well. Well, when I, ever, when I hear people talk about food waste, they are almost invariably talking about what you do at the dinner table or in your kitchen. Um, and 
if you look at the research on food waste, what we do as individuals is really a small part of what gets wasted. It's around 20%. Um, I was surprised when I was doing this research to discover that supermarkets are ran retail retail places are only responsible for about 10% because they really have outlets for almost everything that they produce. Um, even though you see all this stuff in dumpsters, that's not, it doesn't account for very much of what gets wasted, but most of the waste comes at the production level. And it's because we have two different supply chains, one for restaurants, one for, uh, one for restaurants and food service institutions, one for supermarkets. The two supply chains have nothing to do with each other. We saw that during the pandemic as well, where animals were being destroyed, milk was being spilled, crops were being plowed under because there was no place for them to go. That's where the waste is. And to do something about that requires um, somebody to care and policies to cover it. I, I mean, I visited it and, and it has nothing to do with people's inability to get enough food. That's an issue of not having enough income more than anything else or not having enough power to get that income. Um, I've, I visited a production agriculture farm in upstate New York not too long ago and they had just gleaned, they had just um, harvested the fields. He grew corn, squash, broccoli, things like that. He had a whole lot of stuff he was growing. And the fields were full of it. They were just absolutely full of it. He said to us, take as much as you want. I was just going to get plowed under. Take what you want. And, and I said, food banks? Can't you give this to food banks? And he said, I've contacted every food bank within 50 miles and none of them are the slightest bit interested. They'd love to have it, but they don't have the trucks. They don't have the manpower. They don't have the logistics in order, they don't have the money in order to be able to pick up this kind of food. And he certainly was in no position for, to deliver it to the food banks. So you, you have these ridiculous systems in place or situations in place that needs somebody to deal with it in a much more effective way. Um, and, you know, I think the problem of people not having enough food is solvable by making sure they have a decent income. That would solve a lot of problems. They could go to a supermarket and buy food like everybody else does. And that's essentially what the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program does. Um, and enrollments, of course, have increased enormously during the pandemic. But the Department of Agriculture's main way of trying to deal with it was to try to set up a system in which they would pick up food from farms and deliver it to food banks to be distributed to people who line up for miles in cars at food banks, a cumbersome, awkward, stigmatizing, ridiculous system um, in which the government put $4 billion of taxpayer money. Yeah. You know, one of the things that has really just struck me, especially through this pandemic, and of, of course, even after, um, I mean, after reading your book, is how much we just can politicize everything. <laughs> you know, even I mean, with the with the pandemic, just seeing, uh, 
you know, the the masks and all of that being politicized. And of course, talking about, you know, some of the proposed solutions that you have for some of the issues we have going on. You, you see these things, you know, whenever anybody starts to say equality or things like that, you see the, you know, you talk about the C word of capitalism, but there's also the S word of socialism that gets thrown around when we when we talk about those things. And I think that goes back to one of your, your points in the book that I read several times where you say, you not only vote with your forks, but you have to vote with your votes. <laughs> and I'm saying that as I'm looking at my ballot here on my desk, uh, going to cast my vote here. I think that's just so critical to getting anything changed. Well, and now more than ever, everybody needs to vote. Yeah, um, for sure. I can't, I can't think of an election where it was ever more important for people to vote. So, yeah, I mean, I like to talk about voting with your fork, which means every time you buy food, you are making a decision about the kind of food system that you want. If you buy organic, you're promoting organic. If you buy at farmer's markets, you're helping local farmers and so forth. Um, but I think it's and now more than ever, it's important for people to vote with their votes and get engaged in politics. Um, and this year, it's easy. Vote. That's the number one thing to do. Definitely. Yeah, Marion, one of the things you talk about in your book, and I wanted to make sure to, to ask you about with these, uh, because this was actually the first time I had ever heard about them. And these are the sustainable development goals, that these were 17 <laughs> goals that were outlined by the UN in 2015. It's funny, because as I was reading you talking about these, it reminded me of, you know, I, I was in the corporate world for 20 years before moving on and uh, reminded me of these huge, uh, well, these, these goal setting ideas we had, and then everybody just seemed to kind of forget them, you know, throughout the year, or we didn't really, really do much about them. And it, it I, I would say most Americans have not heard about these uh, SDGs, the, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. And can you talk a little bit about that? I know these were implemented by the UN in 2015. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. And and we're supposed to achieve be, these by 2030, but uh, it's already I, I 2020. Don't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're already heading into 2021, and honestly, right. I've not heard much about these. Can you can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. I wanted that question in the book because nobody nobody I knew in America had ever heard of them. And uh, during the time when we were still traveling, I, I didn't I, I was doing a lot of international traveling and speaking about food system and food policy issues um, in places at meetings all over the world. And everybody in Europe, was talking about the sustainable development goals. I went to a meeting at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and they had um, the entire floor of their vast lobby had these goals written on them. Um, the Food and Agriculture Organization is particularly interested in goal number two, which is zero hunger, the idea uh, being that by 2030, there would be no more hungry people in the world, which is certainly uh, a wonderful idea. Uh, the goals cover everything having to do with systems of all kinds. There is no one goal based on food, but food is involved in almost all of them. And it's a, it's a way of measuring progress. Uh, so you set a goal, you say that by 2030, you're going to have zero hunger. In 2020, you can look and see, well, how many hungry people in the world are there? And in fact, the bad news is that there are lots and the numbers are increasing. 
Um, it was going down. For some years, the number of people who were food insecure or didn't have enough to eat on a daily basis was dropping quite consistently from year to year. Now it's going up again. Big surprise. And the pandemic is going to make that even worse. Um, and it's a way of um, international measurement of how we are doing as societies in meeting social goals of one kind or another. Um, and it seems very policy wonky and it is very policy wonky, but lots and lots of people take it very seriously and it, it, it gives um, goals for advocacy. If you need, if you're not sure what to advocate for, you can pick a sustainable development goal and start working on it in whatever your local area is and try to make it work for your locality. So I'm interested in advocacy. And I think one of the big problems of ad advocacy is that the goals are not clear and the outcomes that you, the, the desired outcome is not crystal clear. And I think it needs to be if ad, if ad, if advocacy is going to be successful, the goals have to be really clear. Absolutely. And, and, you know, one thing about that is uh, when you when you look at the uh, sustainable development goals um, of the UN there, and I'm sure, you know, when you get get into the actual policies, they're, you know, kind of broken down somewhat. But when you look at these just as they are, they're huge. They're giant. They're, you know, by if these were set in 2015, that's only 15 years to, to 2030. And without breaking these down into kind of, uh, to use a, a kind of a, an entrepreneurial buzz phrase, um, actionable steps, um, you know, I think it makes it a lot harder to visualize some of these things without really getting in and understanding, you know, okay, so we can do this by, by you know, we can have we can reduce uh, poverty by 10% in this many years and then by 25% in this many, you know, I think it's harder to, to kind of visualize when we don't see that. Well, we don't see it. And also the goals are there, but they don't say who's supposed to carry them out. Hmm. Um, you know, there are 190 something nations that are part of the United Nations and the, um, you know, each country is different. Each country has different political problems. Each country has different economies. Uh, it makes it very difficult. But I think that it lays out in very stark terms where the big needs are. And if you're interested in advocacy, even though this seems very remote from American life, uh, it's a really good place to start. We have similar goals like that for health in the United States. We have the 10-year uh, objective, the health objectives, and we're now working on the 2030 objectives because it's 2020. Um, and these say that we're going to reduce food insecurity by a certain percentage by 2030. We're going to reduce obesity and its consequences by a certain percentage in 2030. And Again, it, uh, even though these things seem remote and they don't say who's responsible for it, it allows you to track progress or lack of progress and make those issues very clear. Um, so I don't know, maybe because I worked in an office that worked on the 2020 objectives at one point, um, I, I think they're worth knowing about. 
Um, and, you know, to think about doing this on a world level seems impossible. To think about doing it in the United States seems impossible. But we know what to do to solve the problem of hunger in the United States. You've just got to give everybody a basic income. Um, and we could do that. We just gave $50 billion to major industrial producers of corn and soybeans, mainly in the Midwest. That's taxpayer money that went into shoring up those big industries. That money could have been spent in other ways if we had the political will to do it. Yeah, I think a lot of that just stems from the from our leadership. I mean, it's, you know, even with these SDGs, the fact that most Americans have not heard about this, this is just, it's one of those things that when the goals aren't, you know, are just politically not convenient, governments will ignore them. Well, I mean, we have a government that pulled out of the World Health Organization, so it's very unlikely that our government is going to be very involved in these United Nations initiatives. Yeah, most definitely. Well, Marion, uh, you you conclude your book with a with a chapter on taking action. Can you just talk a little bit about ways? I know we already touched on some of that, but can you maybe talk a little bit about some ways that you know people just juggling life can uh, can take some action? Well, I think there's there are lots of easy ways to do it, and depending on how much life juggling you're having to do, uh, you can find ways to work towards healthier and more sustainable food systems by joining local organizations that are working on these issues. There are thousands of such organizations in the United States. That's the easiest way. Um, for You can write your congressional representatives, especially if you live in an area uh, where the representatives may not know what their constituents want. Um, the best way of influencing Congress is still to contact your congressional representative personally. The staff counts the number of people who, who write in, and if they are individuals and not part of some sort of organized thing where everybody signs on to something, they actually pay attention to it. You can go visit your local congressional representatives. That's an extremely powerful thing to do, and tell them what it is you want them to do. Um, so especially when there's legislation underway, that's a really good time to do it. And then I tell people, get involved in, in political activities at the local level. Join the local school board. Go to parent-teachers meetings. Um, join the local water board. Join the local agricultural, whatever. Whatever agencies there are in your local area, they invariably need people who are willing to do some of that work. And then run for office. You want power? Run for office. Yeah, I, I, it's funny you say that because just the other day, Larissa and I were talking about, about that and uh, about getting more involved at a local level. And that's definitely something we're, we're going to be looking to do for sure. Marian, it's, it's been super having you on the show. Uh, what are, where is the best place for people to find you? Of course, we're going to have a link uh, to your site and, and where people can find you. But what's the best place that people can find you if they're looking for more uh, information about the work you do? Sure. I write a daily blog called foodpolitics.com. And that site, which by this time is enormous because I've been doing it for almost 15 years, um, 
the I've got my information about me, information about each of my books, uh, talks I've given, public my publications are all up there. Um, how to get involved with things I've got. It has a terrific search engine. And so you can search for whatever you're interested in and you can see what I've had to say about it over the years. Um, I find it a, if I can say so myself, I find it a very valuable resource for looking things up because I can't remember what I wrote about it. <laughs> um, it's It's got a great search engine. So, you know, if you look up advocacy, if you look up, uh, I'm very interested in coalitions of uh, advocacy groups. You look up coalitions, you can see what I've had to say about that and information about everything I've written is up there. Excellent. And the book is called Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. And we will also have a link to that in the show notes. Marion, thank you so much for, for being our guest today. Thank My you. pleasure. This was fun. Well, that was such an incredible interview with Marion. It was great talking to her. I, you know, I get a little starstruck sometimes <laughs> <laughs> with some folks. I even told you that before. I was yes. like, oh, you know, as I was reading her stuff. And, and like I, I told her, I there are very few books that I get through in one day. You know, I'm a slow reader, so I uh, well this one I just kept going faster and yeah. faster as I was well, reading. Well, and it's not it's not so much that you're just a, you're a slow reader, but you're always reading ten books at a time. I am, and I analyze too. You know, you I rarely have a book without a pen with a pen and That's a paper right. next to me, so I do absorb things like that. I but. can always tell books that you've read, even fiction books. <laughs> I can always tell the ones that you've read. If I open it and there's like little notes everywhere in your, your chicken scratch handwriting. <laughs> well, this was great talking to her and just the work she's done in this field has been incredible. And, you know, I, it's, it's one of these things. I don't know if it's, if it's, uh, you know, like I said, in the interview, we have so much access to information these days. It's, it's really crazy how yeah. we, we have the ability to keep ourselves informed. And I think that's really important. So we will have all the links we mentioned, including ways you can find Marion and a link to her book in the show notes. I think that is it for our episode this week. Until next time, peace out. Bye. Thanks for joining us today on Vegetarian Zen. We've created a free resource for you to show you five ways to sneak more fruits and veggies into your diet. You can download it right now by visiting vegetarianzen.com. Until next time, wishing you a happy body and a healthy mind.